Exodus, Moses. And uh, interesting to think about Moses uh, in a time when uh, Ali and Lisa and their youngsters are, are heading out to what we all hope and pray will be a promised land for them. But um, that's always hard to see, as Lisa was eloquently describing the Israelites going out into the desert with a cloud in front of them, not a very uh, sort of easy, tangible thing to follow. And life can feel like that quite a lot of the time. Um, now, we're looking at um, people in the Bible. Um, the, the, the overall sort of title that Carl has given this series is Beautifully Broken. And we're thinking about how God uses real people to do real things as part of his work with humanity. And Moses is a very interesting character in that context. So we had the passage read there from, uh, uh, from Exodus, which is actually the very tail end of a long encounter that Moses has with God uh, in Midian. Uh, when he comes across the burning bush, you may remember the sort of the basic story or the concept of the burning bush. The bush was a light, but somehow not actually being consumed. And Moses thought that was a bit weird went to have a look and discovered that actually it was a sign from God. God wanted to talk with him, have an encounter with him uh, at that point, sort of in the, in the desert, in the outback. But let's have a look at uh, some of the sort of the background about Moses. Now, again, a large chunk of the sort of start of Exodus is about Moses, and you will need to read quite a lot. It's a very easy read. It's quite an interesting, engaging, exciting story. Um, but, uh, but there's quite a lot of it. So I've just sort of uh, encapsulated it here. And just by way of even more background, if you remember Joseph of the many-colored dream coats, Joseph became a leader in Egypt and brought the Israelites out of Israel and into Egypt as a way of escaping a famine. Now, that happened some generations before. Unfortunately, and this has quite interesting sort of uh, resonance to uh, today's political environment, those immigrants had settled in Egypt, they were very sort of comfortable, they were successful, they were integrated into the country, and then the pharaoh decided that a great political solution was to discriminate against the foreigner living amongst us. And that was the backdrop to this story. So Pharaoh was oppressing the Israelites, he'd enslaved the population, and uh, he was making them work on building pyramids and other sorts of, uh, uh, of uh, sorts of projects, infrastructure projects, you might call them. Um, interesting analogies to modern-day U.S. 1930s Germany. Look in your history. So that's where Moses is living, or that's where Moses was born, I should say. He was member of an enslaved population. And uh, Pharaoh just stepped up the ante by saying that uh, he wanted all the young babies killed. The Israelites were found to be breeding. So there was a program of slow genocide going on in Egypt. They were being worked to death if they were already of sort of working age, and they were being slaughtered uh, as they were born. So Moses was born as a Jew into that environment. Fortunately, um, his mother was a very cunning woman and worked out a way to get him adopted by one of the ruling population. And you may remember the story of the baby in the, in the basket, in the reeds. She put her young child just on the edge of the river. Just to say, can you imagine doing that? I mean, we read that story, she put a baby in a basket in the reeds. How many of you would take your three-month-old baby and put it 
by a dumpster at the back of Sainsbury's. Egyptian princess came along, so that was a spot of luck, not just some, you know, Egyptian labourer, um, but a princess. She came along, found the baby, thought, wow, what a cute baby, decided to adopt it, and he was raised as a prince. So that was a bit sort of ragged. Now, it doesn't say in Exodus how long he was there, but actually if you read the account in Acts in chapter 7, where uh, Stephen is before the Sanhedrin, uh, Stephen gives another account of the story of Moses as part of his sort of sermon to the Sanhedrin. And he mentions the fact that uh, Moses was there for about 40 years in, in the royal household. So he grew up to a pretty mature uh, guy, prince in the Egyptian household. That's a long time to spend, and he wouldn't have been very Jewish at the end of that. Three months a Jew, 39 years and a chunk as an Egyptian. I think you're probably an Egyptian. But mentally, somehow, he has retained his Jewishness. And it doesn't say, but one has to assume as well that somehow he's retained his, his connection to God. We don't know quite what that would have looked like. But he's somehow on the lookout. Something happens. He's wandering uh, the sort of uh, the countryside and he comes across an Egyptian slave driver um, maltreating an Israelite. And he kills the Egyptian. So somehow, even after 40 years, he's still got that sense of justice and that sense of Jewishness that makes him feel really angry. And it's interesting, if you, if you read in the account in Exodus, he doesn't just go, what are you doing, bosh? Oh, damn, killed him. He looks around to make sure nobody's looking, and then he kills him. So he's not just an irrational, angry man. He's a calculating, Egyptian-trained killer. He thinks about it, and then he buries the body in the sand. So it's not, a, just, a, it's not just a heat of the moment, hit somebody in the pub sort of thing. This is a, that's a bad thing for this man to do. I'm going to do something about it. And his Egyptian sort of attitude of justice is, that guy's going to die. Now, unfortunately... His looking around wasn't as effective as he thought because people did see. And the next day he goes out and he's talking to some other Israelites who are arguing with each other. And he's saying, hey, look, you know, I'm a prince. You guys, just calm down. You need to be thinking about the oppressing nation. Not quite thinking that he's dressed like the oppressing nation. And they go, hey, posh boy, who are you talking to? We know you killed somebody yesterday. What are you going to do, kill one of us? And he realizes that actually the game is up. And then Pharaoh gets to hear about it, and Moses has to run. Rags to riches to rags. Forty years, success as a prince, and he's completely blown it with one act of murder. And at the same time, feels he's been rejected by the Israelite nation, because they don't want him either. So he goes to Midian, um, settles with, a, with an uncle, Uncle Jethro, um, and uh, marries Jeth one of Jethro's daughters, raises a family, has two kids, and again, Stephen says in Acts that that period lasts for about 40 years. 
So, you know, it's always a little hard to tell in the Bible about ages and whether they're quite the same as ours. But he's definitely old and not young. And he's definitely been through a lot, not a little. And a lot of what he's been through doesn't feel like a success. Certainly the second half of his life so far feels like a failure. There he was, a member of the Egyptian royal family, set up for success, and now he's been sheep farming in the desert for 40 years. Now, he's not going to be feeling that good about life, would be my guess. Let's have a look at what he probably does seem to be thinking. Um, Well, he obviously had a temper. He clearly found it difficult to control. Clearly, he's not confident the Israelites actually regard him as one of them. Certainly, his initial experience with the Israelites has been sort of, you know, push off, who do you think you are? You're not one of us. You're an Israelite. You're an Egyptian prince. He's lacking in confidence. If you read the chapter that precedes the bit we had where he's talking to God around the burning bush, he keeps saying, look, I just, I'm not very good. I'm no good at speaking. Don't go and get me to talk to the Israelites. They won't like me. They won't trust me. I can't talk to them. I'm no good. I've never been any good. That whole chapter is, is sort of riddled with a lack of confidence. And that's actually rather strange because, again, I was struck by this because, you know, you read the passage in Exodus and Moses says numerous times, I'm no good at public speaking. And God says, all right, we'll have Aaron. He's a bit sort of, he's a bit better at it than you. And that's the sort of the classic way that people look at Moses. But actually, if you read Stephen's account, Stephen says, no, no, he's an Egyptian prince. He's highly educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and they were the superpower at the time. They, they knew all there was to know. And then Stephen says he was powerful in speech and action. Well, we know he was powerful in action because he killed an Egyptian overseer. But Stephen says he was powerful in speech as well. And I was struck by that. And I just wonder, and it doesn't tell us whether this happened or not, but I just wonder whether 40 years as a shepherd had completely nobbled his confidence, had completely sort of destroyed the the princely arrogance, but also the princely presentation techniques and the princely eloquence and the princely presence. Had that been ground out of him by looking after sheep for 40 years? We don't know, but it definitely wasn't there when he met God by the burning bush. So that's how Moses saw himself. An 80-year-old failure, pretty much. Good at sheep, but not really good for anything else. Certainly not good for going and talking to foreign superpowers or oppressed peoples. What did God think? God had a different view. the heart of what God wanted was God actually wanted Moses to rely on him. So God wasn't recruiting Moses for the characteristics and the qualities and skills that Moses had. God could see those, undoubtedly, and they did show through eventually. But that's not what God is saying to Moses. God's not saying to Moses, yeah, come on, shape up. Let's do some mental exercises and get your self-confidence back. Do some breathing. Do some focusing. Do some visualization. Why not hire a life coach? Sorry, Sue. But it's not, uh, 
He's not trying to rebuild Moses from a sort of a mental and an emotional perspective. He's saying, okay, you feel like poo. I understand that. You've got a lot of reasons for feeling that life has dealt you a really bad hand. Just rely on me. Rely on me. I will help you speak. I will teach you what to say. I think that's an incredibly powerful message for us. We don't need to get from a bad place to a good place before we can be useful to God. And actually God's mission is not to sort of rebuild us as human beings and turn us into sort of wonderful superheroes. He has that view of us. That's what he believes we are already. That's how he sees us. He sees us as worth saving and as incredibly valuable people. He has incredible love for us. But we don't need to be fixed before God can use us. So if you're feeling unfixed, if you're feeling broken or damaged or in some way sort of impaired, ground down, not in the right place, not in the right job, not in the right relationship. You don't need to fix that, and you don't need to wait for God to fix that before God can start working with you and through you. Because that was what God wanted to do with Moses. I will help you to speak. I will give you the skill that I need you to exhibit, and I will teach you what to say. And it's interesting because God's relationship with Moses gives us a picture of the relationship that he wants with us. If you read on through Exodus and you follow Moses right out into the desert and onto the edge of the promised land, Moses becomes known as the person who speaks face to face with Yahweh. Nobody else in the Bible, apart from Jesus, has that experience of speaking face to face on a regular basis with God. And it's said, actually, that when Moses spoke with God and then came away, his face was so changed that other people couldn't look at Moses' face. But Moses was able to talk face to face with God. He had that closer relationship. So something shifted dramatically from the point we're looking at now to the, the next third of Moses' life, the last third. It says Moses died when he was 120. Again, whether the age is quite specific, we don't know. But the last third of Moses' life was quite clearly an astounding success from God's perspective. Moses met God face to face, and God spoke with him as a friend. That's what God wants for us. That's what we should want from our relationship with God. Let's have a look at the next point. So how do we begin to apply a story of an Egyptian prince who became a failed shepherd, who became a wandering people through the desert? How do we apply that message to our 21st century lives? Well, if you were a prince and now you're a shepherd, then it's fairly easy. Um, for the rest of us, I think one of the things that struck me is God is not ageist. As I head towards the zone where ageism becomes more of, a, more of a thing, that's very encouraging. But I was actually also struck by the fact that 
you know, age is not something that matters to God. In fact, I'm not sure that God actually thinks of age at all. A thousand years are to, us, are to God as a day. So whether you're sort of five or 50 or 500 is not necessarily going to be that material to God. What God is focused on is our characters, what we're like, who we are, and how we relate to him. So think of the very young Samuel. What was he, 10, 12 in the temple? God was able to use him. Here we have an 80-year-old failed shepherd wandering around the desert. God is able to use him. God doesn't care how old you are. God wants to know you as you are. And God knows our potential much better than we do. Moses had no idea, really, of what he was capable of. God had a idea. But God will use us in situations that we do not believe are possible. Moses kept telling God, the Egyptians won't listen to me. They regard me as a rebel. The Israelites won't listen to me. They regard me as an Egyptian. I can't talk anyway. It's a complete waste of time. But again, that's not how God saw Moses. And that's not how God sees us. So you may be looking at situations and saying, I can't, I can't do this. I can't, I can't talk to that group of people. I can't go into that situation. I can't make a difference to those lives. Well, you can't. But God can. All God needs you to do is to turn aside from what you're doing Notice there's a burning bush over there and go and engage with God. Have a conversation with him. That's all God needs you to do. Because God will teach you. God will give you the skills. God will give you the words or the silence that might be required in that situation. And God wants a relationship with us. He wants to be meeting with us face to face. Now, if I'm honest, I don't know what that looks like for you, and I often find it difficult to know what it looks like for me. I don't have burning bush experiences very often. I don't very often have a sense of God meeting me face to face. But I should be seeking that. I should be looking out for that. I should be alert to God's presence. And God can speak to us in so many different ways. It might be a sort of supernatural experience like a burning bush. It might be a friend saying something. It might be something you read. It might be an advert on the tube or the television or in the paper. It might be the pattern of the sunlight on the path as you're walking along. There are so many extraordinary, simple, everyday ways that God is able to interact with us, to speak to us, and to have an encounter with us. But we have to be looking for it. So it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter what state you're in. It doesn't matter what situation you're in. Because it's not about you. It's about what God can do. But he wants to do it through you. So look out for God as you're going out into the world this week. Listen out for him. Let's pray. Father God, we...
wants to be alert to you. We would love to have a relationship with you like Moses had. We pray, Lord, that you will draw near to each one of us over the coming weeks and that you will draw us near to you as you lead us and walk beside us. In Jesus' name, amen.